And good afternoon, everyone. It's Giovanni McGuire again with another edition of The By Joe Show. Today is July 8th, 2023. So, I hope you enjoyed my show. I'm Carrie Morin. We're still working hard to um, see if we can get him uh, promoted a little bit better. And things are progressing. But no big news to report, unfortunately, yet. I'm optimistic. We'll see what happens. Anyway, today's show is going to be a little bit different because it's going to be more, uh, less a celebration of an artist and more another kind of delve into the personal experience and then broadening out from there. It has a lot to do with the idea of political correctness. Now, I think most people who are smart understand that there is a place for political correctness. It makes sense. There is a good reason for it. But when it gets uh, politicized and it gets a little, um, you know, used as a weapon to, um, you know, demonstrate how superior someone is in contrast to you, that's when we get a little bit of trouble. And there's a lot of that going around. Um, there's a lot of good stuff going around. But there's also a lot of the bad stuff going around. And I'm going to try and explain this um, in a way that makes sense. And through a couple of personal experiences I've had over the last month or so. So that's the theme of today. Um, I get right into it. The first experience was... Um, on a day where I woke up and I was feeling, you know, pretty good, feeling energetic, in a pretty good mood, um, ready to tackle the day. Everything was kind of tickling me. I felt like I was laughing a lot and I don't know, it was just a, felt like a joyous day. Um, and it started out that way. So the first thing I did when I woke up is I had my little breakfast and, um, I had a a uh, hair appointment later in the afternoon. Had to get a haircut. Now I just go down the street to the, you know, the cost cutters place. You know, there's nothing fancy with my hair. Um, I'm the kind of person who likes to just have it easy. You know, you wake up. I mean, for many years I just cropped it very very closely, um, like a brush cut. And I happen to look good like that. Um, but, you know, lately I've been thinking, well, I've been doing that for so long. I'm going to let my hair grow out. And, of course, during COVID, a lot of people let their hair grow out. And I thought people looked really nice with longer hair. So I thought, okay, I I, I have a pretty full head of hair for a 58-year-old. It's, uh, it's salt and pepper, gray. And I thought what I will do, which was su suggested a couple about a decade ago by somebody um, who I worked with previously, is just sweep your hair back, you know, um, over your, over the dome of your head, and, um, you know, grow it out a little bit. It's kind of the old guy haircut. Um, I thought, yeah, okay, I'll try that. And, you know, they're trying to convince me to put paste in my hair and all this other stuff, and I'm just like, oh, no, too much work. But I decided to kind of go in that direction for a while, and then I went back to the easy stuff, easy maintenance brush cut for, again, for a good amount of time. And then 
I decided recently to, to, to start sweeping it back again. And even without the, you know, gels and paste and whatever you, you know, just a light treatment of it, um, it's relatively easy to, to maintain. And so um, my hair was getting very long and it was starting to kind of feather like back in the 70s, you know, um, had to just clean it up. So I went to the, to, the, to the usual person and she's very good. I said, this is what I want you to do. So she, I said, especially off the back, I don't want a long tail in the back. I don't want it to be mullet-like. Um, you know, I know people are wearing those proudly these days. Um, you know, just, just cut the back so that, you know, you kind of cut the tail off. And it's just, uh, you know, shoulder length. I'm not going to go beyond that, but I want, you know, I want to grow out the front part so that it was already growing out so that it was kind of like starting to fall properly. And then it would kind of sweep over my eyes sometimes. And, you know, I thought it looked pretty good. Uh, so I said, well, just leave that long, but clean it up and cut the back so that it doesn't look unruly. And so she she did that. She she cut the front a little too much, I think. But I was like, oh, well, it doesn't make any difference. I'm going on vacation. I don't want I want to deal with my hair. So I just keep growing out the 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 front part so that it sweeps back very nicely. So it's like, oh, this is great. I'm having such a good day. Everything's going well. You know, I mean, we had a nice conversation. Um, okay, what's next? So next thing on the agenda um, was to on the way back do a little research. Now I'm a psychotherapist. And so some of the research that I that I that I'm doing has to do with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Um and I I I know that this stuff, I mean you just read the research on it and it's pretty convincing. You know, there it is a fad to a certain extent, but um it doesn't matter because the work that's being done is, is, is very good, and they're having excellent results with it um, in the scientific community. Now that it's not taboo anymore, they can get the substances, they can do it in the open, and you know everybody's watching and evaluating. So it's kind of great. And uh, you might have noticed that there are ketamine clinics across the country opened up. Well, that's because they've, you know, they've recognized it as, a, as an evidence-based practice now for people with um, major depression or severe depression, and, um, you know, wonderful. You know, you go in, you have a couple of treatments, and wow, it, it makes quite a difference to a lot of people. So I, I was like, okay, well, um, I know that some of my clients use substances, and they use them recreationally, but they also use them therapeutically. Now they're doing it on their own. And uh, they use all sorts of um, substances, from anywhere from cannabis to to um, ecstasy, to psilocybin, to uh, acid, to, I mean, you name it, whatever it happens to be. And, um, uh, you know, what happens is they, they, they use these substances, um, and because of the legal limitations in the state that I live in, I can't, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a medical doctor, I can't prescribe anything, even if you could prescribe it. And I'm, it's beyond my expertise to suggest using medical-type interventions. So it's completely unethical to do so. So if you've got a therapist who's trying to tell you, tell you to take these supplements and that for this and that, don't, don't do it because they are actually violating the ethical code. Um, 
and for good reason. I mean, they could be putting you in a very dangerous position. Um, but people like to make money, so they do it anyway, thinking that nobody's gonna, nothing's gonna happen negatively, and um, that they're gonna get away with it. Nobody's gonna notice. Now, I, I don't sit there and take notes and feel like I'm gonna report anybody, but you know, geez, I mean, with some people I feel like, yeesh, man, you are really, really getting into some touchy subject there, and so you better lay off, but I stay out of it. So anyway, when, I, when I'm using these in my practice, so to speak, it's the people are using these substances on their own without me being in the room. And then they come back and they report to me and they say, oh, when I had some mushrooms the other day, I was walking through the forest and this happened. And, you know, let's talk about it. And it's, it's actually just wonderful to um, use that as fodder for the therapeutic process. Um, and it, it is definitely... Uh, a technique that opens people's minds and, um, you know, it's grist for the mill. It's very nice. I would like at some point to have all this stuff be legal. It's ridiculous that these natural substances are, are, are regulated at all. But, and once they do become a regulator, of course, those people are, you know, the government and other entities are going to make a lot of money off it, which is good to a certain extent, but, you know, they're also predatory. So, for instance, in ketamine, you know, it's not terribly expensive to obtain, but if you obtain it through a clinic, you're going to pay thousands of dollars for a dose, right? And a lot of times it's not covered by insurance because even though it's an evidence-based practice at this point, um, you know, the medical community and the insurance companies still consider it uh, to some degree quackery and... Uh, they, they, it's still ex considered to some degree experimental, depending on the state you're in. So they can deny your claims. But anyway, um, since I'm exploring these modalities, I thought, well, you know, in my state, cannabis is not legal, but people are selling certain types of cannabis. It's, they can do it because there's a loophole in the law. So there are various THCs, um, Delta-8 and THC-9, I think, and a couple other, where, you know, it actually has the psychoactive ingredient in it. It's not like CBD oil, which doesn't have any psycho psychoactive um, ingredient in it. So you're not going to be tripping um, in any way. But um, there are several shops around town where they have very prominently displayed, displayed in their shop window, you know, we sell legal cannabis products or THC products. So I went in there and I thought, huh, that's interesting. Okay, I'm going to check it out. And I'm still kind of feeling pretty good. And I walk in the, in the institution, in the little shop on the way home, and I get in a conversation. There are two people in the, in the place. There's the practitioner, who's a kind of young guy with all sorts of earrings and tattoos and piercings and whatever. And, uh, and then there's a, a, another guy who's a customer, and he's a little more, you know, less, uh, you know, he just looks like kind of an average Joe guy. Uh, no, no tattoos, no piercings, no nothing. And, the, and they're in the midst of a conversation, and they're talking about it, and they're mostly talking about recreational-type uses. And after when I get a chance to ask a question, you know, I, I pipe in and I say, and, and it was interesting because the, the guy behind the counter obviously had no trouble. There was no taboo and no... Shame, uh, you know, associated with what he was doing. The guy 
and but but he was kind of like a dude man and it just seems like he was really into it for like recreational kind of purposes the other guy was a little more erudite a little more you know hmm this has been my experience that that had been good this has been not so good and i'm i'm trying to figure out and he's he's on this ex exploration for himself and there's a little bit of it of 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 a you know he's trying to figure out who he is. He's a young person. These people are all in their mid-twenties. And then another guy comes in who's a little older, and uh, he's just like, hey, you know, you got my whatever, and then he walks back out. But anyway, we have this long conversation, and then I said, you know, I'm looking, I'm, I'm a psychotherapist, and I, I think that cannabis is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an excellent um, substance to use for therapeutic purposes. Um, I noticed that you're s selling psychoactive types of, I, you know, I didn't want any, I didn't need any, but I said, huh, this is interesting. I mean, how, how does it work here? Do you, do you have people coming in for therapeutic purposes or is it mostly recreational? I think his answer was basically it's recreational, but I said, I'm more interested in the therapeutic side and I'm I'm interested in your experiences. And we got in this really lovely conversation. It was very nice. And everybody, person who I want, the young man who was there to to buy something, he, he happened to have the same first name as me, so I was like, oh, that's funny. But anyway, um, we had a really nice, delightful conversation that was respectful and real and interesting, and I learned a couple of things, right? And so at one point I said, you know, I'm, I'm actually, there are a lot of people that I work with who use psilocybin, and I'm really interested. I've noticed in other places, um, there are people who you can, like in New York State, for instance, there are people who can go into shops and buy psilocybin candy bars, for instance, right? And you can um, buy a whole candy bar, and if you buy the whole candy bar, it's about a five gram, I think it's a gram, or micro, um, I don't know. I, don't, I, I, forgot, I forgot what the dosages are, but it's five of whatever, five or six of whatever. And if you take it, you're going to go on a trip. But that's the whole candy bar. I don't know who's going to, you know ingest an entire chocolate bar and go on that trip. But anyway, if you take one square or two or even three, you know, it's like a microdosing situation where you're, you're going to feel effects, but um, you're not going to, you know, hallucinate and you're not going to have any distortions of your time and space and all that kind of thing. So I thought, huh, I, there are clients that I know um, who microdose and it's been very helpful for them. So... People will be on, you know, pharmaceuticals for years and years. They find like they're not useful. They're not helping. In fact, they're making it worse because the side effects are almost not worth it. And um, so instead of that, I'm going to take myself off that and uh, put myself on a microdosing thing. And so um, that has been beneficial for quite a few people. I've heard, um, you know, various reports. Right, so I thought, oh... In the shop, I said, do you, it seems like you're kind of skirting the law here a little bit, you know, you're, you're selling cannabis products, even though they're illegal, but there's a technicality. I was wondering, do you have any of these candy bars or any kind of product that has psilocybin in it? And uh, his response was, well, God, I wish, um, but you can't have psilocybin in Wisconsin. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, I thought that would be kind of a similar skirting of the law, but I guess technically it's it's not in the same, you know, domain. So he doesn't sell it. 
thought, okay, that's smart. And then the other young man piped in and said, hmm, you know, uh, yeah, that would be cool too. Yeah, it would be nice if they had that, but uh, we'll see. Maybe, maybe someday. In this state, um, there's a lot of resistance to it, strangely enough, even though we're surrounded by states that uh, have legalized a lot of things. But anyway, we have a great conversation. I say, all right, well, cool. Let me know if you ever hear of anybody who, who is selling this stuff. I'd be interested to actually try it myself and see what it's like, you know? Um, and, and if you are going to get into uh, psychedelic-assisted uh, psychotherapy, um, one of the requirements is that you understand what it feels like to be under the influence of one of these drugs. And so I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. Well, it didn't happen. So I laughed and I was a little disappointed, but it doesn't matter because I, I will find a way. But um, anyway, I leave the store and I'm feeling like great. You know, I just had a great conversation. People were very smart and studious and they knew what they were talking about. And wow, I learned some things and it was a great experience. So I go home and I think my daughter was at school still. And then there's a farmer's market on Tuesday night in my town, um, in the same part of town that I live in. So I thought, okay, well, I love to go to the farmer's market because they have so many wonderful things in the summer. The produce is just amazing. It's all local and you can find some really good things there. So we went. And when I go to the farmer's market, what I usually do is I, I check out, um, you know, the whole place. I go to all the stands and kind of identify what I think looks good. And then I go back for a second sweep and, you know, I buy the things that I, I sort of zeroed in on. And um, amongst the stalls was a young man who looked, you know, pretty, uh, I would say preppy, not, not looking, you know, like the nose piercings and the tattoo type. He had on, you know, kind of a, a button-down shirt. He looked like, you know, he, he had a little money to spend on his wardrobe. He had a nice pair of glasses, you know, very, very well groomed, you know. I mean, I just kind of look like an intelligent guy. Um, and he, he grows mushrooms. And so he has a table, and then there's a little box on the table. There's an, uh, one customer there, a young woman, adult, and him, and then I walk by. And I see a little, you know, there's like lion mains mushrooms, and there's chaga and all these other kind of mushrooms that people use medicinally. Now, they're not psychoactive mushrooms. They're medicinal in the sense of like Chinese medicine. Like if you have, you know, if you're having stomach issues, okay, they mix you up some herbs and mushrooms and whatever they have, and they give you this thing and you take it as prescribed, and then you're going to be better. And, and that stuff is amazing because it works a lot of the time. So I'm like, oh, okay, so he's got medicinal mushrooms, but he also has culinary mushrooms. This reminded me a little bit about Michael Michael Pollan's book. You know, I think it's called How to Change Your Mind, which is a wonderful survey book of his experience as a food writer, getting interested first in food, then in mushrooms, because they are fascinating. You know, if you kind of understand how they, they're, they're a separate class of entities biologically. They're not animal. They're not plant. They're, they're fungi fungi, whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, they found some very interesting things about these mushrooms, not just in the psychoactive part of it, but 
the fact that they grow in a certain way, they have an, it's like, an, um, you know, what you see is kind of the fruit, the spore, the fruit, well, not the spore, I've, I'm not an expert on this, but it's the, the mushroom part of it is just the kind of the flower in a way, and you can pick it and eat it. But underneath is what's actually more interesting from a scientific point of view, I guess, because they, they mushrooms grow in a, in a neural network type of way, and they, they, they kind of co they can communicate with each other, right, chemically, and do interesting things and, and interact with like trees and other things mostly in a symbiotic way and there's a, a certain beauty to that. And so they're a special they're a special thing. And um, so he, he got interested because of you know the culinary aspect of them and then he got interested in more in the scientific part and then he got interested in the psychoactive part and he himself went through all these experimental um you know some of the some experiences with psychoactive substances of all kinds, and he reported back on it. And of course, weaved in what the scientific community is doing and what the mental health community is doing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a wonderful book. Everybody should read this. It can change your life, not just change your mind. And he goes through all the studies what they're good for. You know, when people are dying of cancer, psilocybin is very good for it. It uh, reduces your fear, your anxiety, you know, and puts you in a different plane of mind that where, where your life is is bearable even though you're terminal. So anyway, um, I, I go to this mushroom stand and I kind of poke around and I look and see what he's got. And then as a joke, I said, hey, you wouldn't happen to have any of those psilocybin mushrooms in the back there, you know, tucked away in your truck or you know, in a, in a box back in, back in the, you know, in the back of the truck. And he kind of looked at me and with a half smile, but I could tell he was a little bit annoyed. Um, he kind of laughed a little bit, but it was an uncomfortable laugh. And I said, oh, okay. So I was just waiting there patiently for the young woman to transact her, whatever she was going to buy. And as soon as she walked away, this young man said to me, you know, that was very inappropriate. And that seems to be the catchphrase, you know, whenever somebody is um, upset by something, you know, they say to you, that was very inappropriate. And I said, really? I said, how, how is that inappropriate? And he said, he kind of hemmed and haw and looked at his phone and he didn't really have anything to say. And I was like, well, he, he doesn't seem to want to articulate or he doesn't know how to articulate it. But I said, oh, is it because of, of the stigma associated with psychedelic mushrooms? And he basically nodded and hemmed and hawed again, didn't really say anything, started looking at his phone. And um, I said, oh, okay, okay, I see, I see, I, I get it. You're, 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 it's the stigma associated with it that, that, you're, that you're concerned with. And so I said, well, you know, that's kind of, you understand that you're playing into the stigma. You're not going against it by telling me that was inappropriate. Right, first of all, it was a joke, so I have a sense of humor. Secondly, learn how to be a little bit more, you know, it's not, the, it's not that the customer is always right, but have some social skills and have some business acumen. But, um, you know, he hemmed and hawed and didn't know, and I went away, and I was going to buy stuff from him, but then I was just like, what a prick. I mean, what a... You know, he's just kind of wagging his finger. And I said, look, I'm a psychotherapist. I'm not some dude who's 
you know, asking you because, you know, I think it's cool or recreational or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm asking you a legitimate question and I'm, I, I would be curious to see if you either grow it or don't, or I would want to, or wouldn't want to. And, you know, I guess he's afraid of, you know, the impression it would make, but, you know, here's an instance where someone feels uncomfortable. You know, the first thing I thought is, oh yeah, he probably does grow these things, but he's got to pretend like he doesn't. And, you know, I might be a cop or something, who knows, you know, people are very paranoid. But um, when you get into conversations with them a lot of the time, because they're like, what do you want? You know, they don't really think that you have a legitimate reason for asking these things. So I thought, oh God, this guy is really, you know, the, he's the political correct pol police. He's using it in the, in the worst way, you know, in just the most humorless, most inappropriate, really. Um, if there's anything inappropriate going on, you know, it's him because he's completely missing the point. And he's assuming certain things about me by what I said and how I said it. You know, because psychotherapists can have a sense of humor and they always have to be perfectly, you know, perfectly well-behaved. Well, you know, not this psychotherapist. This psychotherapist believes that, you know, when you're walking around as a citizen, you, you don't have to apply the same rules to everybody you encounter. You can choose to do that. I don't. Because um, I, I think sometimes you really do need to get a little more aggressive with people to, you know, let them know where you stand. But I didn't get aggressive. I didn't get, you know, sarcastic or anything with this guy. I just said, all right, I moved on. I didn't buy anything. So one of the other consequences for this guy was that, you know, I'm not going to buy anything from him. I go to a different farm market and get my mushrooms from those people, and they're perfectly happy, and they don't give me any attitude, right? And so this guy, over the course of summer, probably lost at least $250 worth of business for me. So, okay, those are the consequences. But I, I actually feel, you know, if, if he would have been a little bit more open and a little bit more, you know, mature about it, we could have had a conversation and worked it out and come to terms and said, oh, you know, whatever. Maybe he still thinks I'm an asshole. But I think he was embarrassed when I said, I'm a psychotherapist. I actually use these in my practice, not use them in the sense that I, like I said, I don't prescribe or anything like that, but they become part of my practice and I'm trying to learn about this stuff. And so I'm going out there with a pretty innocent, you know, open mind and then you get then you get beaten down by somebody you know and the psychological reality for them is that they they couldn't handle it you know they didn't know how to cope with that kind of interaction but instead of just admitting that you know that's what all the hemming and hawing was and the going on the phone and everything because it takes some time to process this stuff right so i thought it'd be interesting if you go back you know and then go back to a stand and if he would say, oh, you know what, hey, the other day, I mean, maybe I was a little bit too harsh, you know. But that's not how people, because it becomes an ego struggle. You know, there's some people who get into the the mushroom thing because, you know, it's, it's a little like, like like coffee and and, you know, culinary things, you know. I am the expert on this. I know the best things, and I'm going to use that as a cudgel to show you how stupid you are so that I can puff myself up. That in itself is sad, because if you're passionate about something, you should be in it for the right reasons, not because you want to stroke your own ego, right? You want to share with people and say, isn't this amazing, right? I love it. Tell me what you know. I'll let you know what I know. Let's just, 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 let's just um, roll in this beautiful interaction. But uh, no, 
No, these things are used to, to cudgel people with. And so I was actually a little offended, but I just, I just left, you know. So that's my first story about uh, political correctness, um, gone, gone awry. Um, my second story has to do with an interaction I had on TikTok. And you could say, well, of course, if you're on TikTok, you know, you're going to get into some kind of trouble. But nonetheless, again, I was kind of scrolling through it. I mostly go on there to look at all the cute dogs and kittens and, you know, quirky things that are on there. And it, it does provide me with a, a lot of joy. You know, every couple times a day I'll go there and spend a couple minutes and send some messages to people, you know, uh, that uh, show them the little TikTok thing, and it's it's fun, and they send me things back. So anyway, I get on, and there's a uh, there's a clip of Glenn Gould. Glenn Gould, the very famous um, concert pianist, who is very well known for his interpretations of Bach, in particular, the Goldberg Variations. So he was coming of age in the 1950s, 1960s. Um, he stopped recording, I mean, he stopped performing in public, I think sometimes in the, in the 70s. And, uh, well, you know, so um, there was a clip of him playing the aria, the first piece of the Goldberg Variations. And, of course, he has been very influential, and I'm going to preface this by saying which I didn't do on TikTok, that, of course, Bach and Glenn Gould are masters of their craft, right? Bach is an undoubtedly, you know, there's no question that he was a master composer, etc., etc. I think of him mostly as a composer because he really laid the foundation for Western classical music. And... Um, took it out of the dark ages in a certain sense. He also hamstrung us to a certain extent, but, you know, you know, even geniuses can only go one step at a time in a way. But, okay, so uh, there was a clip of Glenn Gould, and Glenn Gould was so influential that pretty much everybody copied him for many years after that in terms of the pace of the piece, in terms of whatever. But the clip shows him, he, this is kind of a little bit later, it seems, in his career where he's hunched over and he, albeit he's having all these health problems and he was very kind of um, uh, volatile personality and he had all these hypochondriacal issues and whatever. But nonetheless, he gets on the piano, he's hunched over, his hands, he's playing with one hand, his other hand is kind of like waving like a conductor with the bead in a way. And he's grunting and doing all these things and it's, to me... Now, again, I'm going to preface this by saying I, I really appreciate what he did, okay? But to me, that stuff does not add anything to the, to, the, to the sound of the music, the performance, right? Some people might like that kind of thing, like Keith Jarrett grunting. That makes more sense because it's jazz, right? And jazz has a call and response kind of feel to it. So, you know, in the church, people cry out, right? And so his grunting is still annoying, but at least it has some, you know, whatever, Classical music, people just, just generally do not make those noises on purpose or they, if they feel, you know, they try to suppress them so that when you hear the recording, it sounds pure and you don't get distracted by all sorts of things. Well, this clip was distracting me in terms of the sound. It was distracting me in the, in the, in the visuals. And as, as, again, as a joke, really, I said, oh, look at Grant Gould. You know, all that affectation doesn't add shit, basically. Look, Mom. No hands, you know, sort of like that. 
okay, I should have known better because um, I grew up playing the piano and I was, you know, good enough that I was considering going to conservatory. I had practiced for 10 years, started at age eight. You know, these days that's, that's really late, but you know what I mean? I was a serious student, um, first with a kind of traditional piano teacher and then with a much better piano teacher who showed me all sorts of new music and, you know, kind of pop music, jazz, jazz fusion, all this other stuff. I got really turned on by it. And of course, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a classically trained pianist, um, you know, I was about to go audition at Eastman. So I was good enough to do that. Albeit, you know, my, my heart really wasn't in it. I, I, I'm just not a performer. Um, I don't enjoy performing in front of crowds, even, even for myself sometimes. I get too nervous, I get so too self-conscious, and all this other stuff. So I decided that I wasn't going to go that way, and I was going to go into math and physics instead, and that seemed like a much more practical thing to do. But anyway, when I went to school, especially graduate school, I met all these composers, amazing people, amazing composers. It's taught me so much about classical music, um, way above and beyond, because they came at it from a composer's point of view. Now, in the classical world, classical music world, you know, the performers are basically um, performing monkeys, I mean, in some ways, right? They, they There's a piece of music put before their eyes. They do have some power to interpret, you know, but, um, you know, they're there to play it kind of perfectly. They never do, but to the untrained ear, it's always, you know, it's part what is what is perfect. It's a little different for everybody. But, you know, their performance is supposed to be flawless. You're not making mistakes, hitting the wrong notes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. I have a recording of someone doing Stravinsky's piano music, and on some of these pieces, he is mangling. I feel like he didn't even know these pieces. He was just reading them, sight-reading them, because his performance was terrible. It didn't sound anything like what I thought they would should sound like, and I don't know, but I was wondering what Stravinsky would think. But anyway, um, so here you have, you know, Bach, and um, you have to realize that as as musicians... Classical music people are basically reading off the piece of paper and playing it. And they are, again, I'm going to preface this by, they are stellar, excellent at what they do. It is amazing that anybody can do this, right? And play so flawlessly and so beautifully, etc., etc. That's my kudos to all of you. I mean, I love you. I, I admire you. Okay, I'm going to preface everything but that. But there is something in the classical music world which is, is kind of gone awry because classical music used to be the popular music. Used to the people, the people used to, the general public would listen to classical music, right? And uh, at a certain point it became that, right? And I'm going to contradict myself a little bit when I get into the particulars about Bach. But anyway, I am, you know, to me what's most important is the composer because the composer you know, takes these musical ideas out of the ether and puts them on the page. It's an act of pure creation, and it's very impressive. Um, you're not just aping what somebody has done, right? I know people are going to get offended by that, by that characterization, but to me, the composer is king in music. Because without the composer, nobody can do anything. The orchestras can't play, the piano players can't piano, the... Uh, you know what I'm saying? 
you have to have the pieces. And so the composer should really be at the top of the food chain, right? But they're often not, especially in modern classical music, right? These days it's about, because, because classical music is not the popular music anymore, you have to have gimmicks in order to have people eyeballs on you, right? So you'll see that some of the female performers wear super skimpy outfits, they have a huge cleavage hanging out when they're playing. You're like, well, that's not really adding anything. That, I don't know, it seems a little tacky to me, but uh, whatever, you know, that's what you want to do, that's cool. But the focus has mostly shifted to marketing classical music because they're so desperate to make money that they'll do anything. It has nothing to do with the music, right? It's all about appearances. And every time you go to classical and you see something in the paper about here's a performance that's happening, it's always the most canonical music. It's, it's like Beethoven's Fifth, and I mean, I'm not taking anything away from that, but it's the stuff that everybody knows that they play over and over and over again, and you never hear what's going on contemporaneously. You never hear from the composers who maybe take a little bit more work to listen to because it's not as, you know, um, palatable to an untrained ear. Um, you know, but of course, you know, if the, the higher, the, the more knowledge you get of classical music, the, the more the music that sounds avant-garde doesn't sound avant-garde anymore because um, you're craving something new. And just an aside, if you want to talk about musicianship, jazz musicians are so much more musically adept because, again, in classical music, you used to have what was called a condensa part of the thing where you could kind of solo and improvise on a piece for a certain number of bars. And that doesn't happen anymore. There's no such thing. So, but jazz musicians, right? You put four guys in a room, and if they're seasoned jazz people, you know, a guy puts up three thing, th fingers to signify whatever, A major, and you, you say what the song is, and you, and you go. You play the verse, you play the chorus, you, you do, you know, whatever is the traditional, you know, kind of way of doing it, and you just, you just wing it. And then you improvise, and the improvise is where the beautiful musicianship comes in because they are creating this stuff on the fly, right? I mean, not really because, you know, while they're practicing, they're kind of probably for formulating some kind of attack for a solo. But um, nonetheless, it is truly amazing that those people can get together in a room, do that, and then just be in sync with each other and really make very few mistakes that are obvious. So my hat's off to the jazz musicians. I think to some extent they, they are even finer musicians overall in terms of musicianship, in terms of um, maybe not understanding theory so much, but maybe not even sight reading but, um, or understanding music on a page. But as musicians, they are quite, quite advanced compared to your average classical person. So if you put a classical person in the setting of a jazz combo, they will freeze and pretty much not be able to do anything. If you put a, a jazz person on stage and you tell them, hey, you got 10 days to practice this piece and you can perform in a concert hall, they would probably be able to pull it off. So that's kind of the difference. Um, you can't just lump musicians into, into one, one, you know, there, there, there are distinctions to be made. So anyway, I get hell for this comment, making light of Glenn Gould. And there, there's so many comments that come from so many different angles, but they basically have nothing to do with the content of what I say. People are saying things like, I feel sad for you because you can't appreciate great classical music. And, um, you know, oh, you're jealous. And, oh, you're... Because at one point I said, you know, um, 
not coming at this like 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 with the mushroom thing. It's not like bro is coming into the room and just someone who has no, you know, no idea about classical music and saying something, you know, snide, right? Which happens a lot, actually. A lot of people who are who hate classical music and don't enjoy it will kind of denigrate it by saying, you know, by making snide comments of the kind of, but they didn't understand there was some substance behind it, right? First of all, I, I play, and secondly, I love music. So there's one woman in particular who keeps, she looks like she plays piano. She's probably about the level I was. Um, and she's saying, oh, you're jealous. You're Oh, you're the kind of person who doesn't practice. I mean, I haven't practiced and I mean, I still play, but you know, it's embarrassing how bad I am away, but that doesn't take away from, you know, my opinions about things and what have you. But anyway, um, she's like, well, you just wish you were that good. Or you, well, where did you go to conservatory? And all this other kind of stuff. And she's just attacking me. I'm, I'm like, you know, the ad hominem attacks are getting very tired. She's like, just listen. That's all we have is affectation. I was like, oh my God, this person is in the classical. And that's what she says. That's all we have is affectation. Meaning that's the only thing that distinguishes you from other performers? Okay. Basically, and she said, you would be surprised how much, you know, each movement of your body and everything. And, I, you know, I'm thinking, well, she clearly doesn't know that I play. But then I say, I, I was a classically trained pianist. So I'm not just blowing the shit out my ass, you know? And she says, oh, okay, that's why, because you're not successful and you're not this and you're not that. And at a certain point, I just had to say bye because she kept attacking me, right? And not getting to the point I was making, which was, first of all, a joke. But secondly, I mean, if you're if you're confident in your own, you know, point of view, you don't have to attack the people by calling them losers and all the rest of it. And so I'm like, wow, you're you're kind of a mean person. You're telling me that I'm mean. She said I'd call me ableist and all this other stuff. So anyway, um, there's also this myth. And there's another guy who was like, "Oh well, you where what conservatory did you go to? Where are your recordings? And let me listen to." It. I said, "I didn't tell you I was a classical pianist to to appeal to authority necessarily. I was telling you because I'm a music lover." And when I said that, he kind of came back and adjusted his attitude, which was which I appreciated because he was like, "Oh, I thought you were an ass, and now I understand that you're you're, you're you have a little more depth there." So let, let's have a conversation. So he's like, well, which which uh, pianist do you like? Which versions of the gold variations do you like? You know, and I'm not an expert in any, any, in any way. I mean, I do know somebody who, who is considered one of the top interpreters of Bach, who is very well known and very w well recorded and has won numerous Grammy, etc. I mean, all of this doesn't mean anything, but I do have some access to people who really have intimate knowledge of this. But anyway, um, you know, when I when I think of Gould, I think of, yes, he is one of probably one of the top five, no doubt. He might even be the top if you average it out amongst people's opinions, right? My, I'm just one opinion. I prefer Peter Serkin. I prefer Charles Rosen. I prefer, you know, and, and this other person men mentioned uh, Andres Schiff, who I... I said, yeah, I think he's an excellent pianist, but you know his version, I think, is a little fast, and, and that shows you Gould's Gould's influence because I think Gould played it very deliberately and more slow than other people do, and, and that's that's been hugely influential. Definitely transformed the whole 
the whole performance aspect and all this other stuff. Um, so he turned around and he was like, oh, okay. And we had a nice conversation. Then this other guy chimes in and says, you know, things along the line of, you know, I feel sorry for you. You know, Bach was a genius. Gould was a genius. You know, there is a Glenn Gould cult out there. You know, if you say anything negative about Glenn Gould, man, just watch out. You know, it's like saying something bad about the Dalai Lama or something. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't idolize your heroes like that. You know, yes, make them heroes, but don't make them perfect, right? They're not gods. They're just people with special talents. And Glenn Gould was a prick, you know, by all accounts, including from his own people, right? I mean, the guy was off the hook. He was not a nice person. He clearly had some mental health issues. But, uh, you know, don't, don't make these people into, into you know, um, flawless gods because they're not. But that leads to the second um, kind of thing where, you know, um, people started saying, well, you're ableist and you're this and that because, you know, he was autistic. Of course, they don't know that I'm a psychotherapist either. <laughs> and I've worked with many people who are autistic. And on, on, you know, when they say the spectrum, it's good because it does give you an idea, but it's also not great because now that we say spectrum, everybody's like, oh, he's on the spectrum even when he's not autistic or he or she is not autistic. So, so this one guy says, well, he was, you're, what you're calling affectation is his autism and um, all the weirdness that he's exhibiting is because of autism. And I said, okay, well, you might want to walk back that comment because, you know, if you're telling me that aut autistic people are weird. I think you're the one who has a little bit of a of an issue. And secondly, there's no um, indication whatsoever. Even retrospectively, people have done lots of studies on this stuff, including the Gould Foundation itself. Um, if you go to their website, you will see that they say, "Well, there's been a lot of talk about autism. There's nobody. There's nothing wrong with people with autism, but there's no evidence to show that Glenn was autistic." And I, I think you'd have to conclude that um, it's, it's, it's highly unlikely. He was just an eccentric guy. And, you know, he did... There were times where he crossed over into bad behavior and all this. He was the bad boy, you know, the original bad boy of classical music. And that's a marketing technique in a way. Now, you, you might not say he's doing it consciously or even subconsciously or even unconsciously, but his people might have been using that as a selling point. Let's just, just say that's a possibility. We don't know. We can't read people's minds. But anyway, they start talking about autism, and then I have to kind of tell them, like, look, you know, um, you, you, you have a lot of assumptions there, and uh, you're going down the wrong path, you know? And then they're like, rah, 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 and they don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about how horrible a person I am, right? And meanwhile, I'm thinking, boy, this, this person is actually kind of horrible, because they're just stereotypically, you know, um, broad-brushing everybody with autism, right? So, um, okay, that's point number two. Then there's this other guy who's like saying, you know, I made a point of saying, do you think that Bach would play his pieces like Glenn Gould plays? You know, would, would he be so pretentious about it? Would he be, um, you know, so precious about it? You know, and I pointed out in Bach's day, Bach was an unknown. Nobody knew Bach, right? There's a whole Bach family, right, several generations. But the only people who knew Bach were the elites of society, this is where I'm contradicting myself with the pop music idea of classical music, because back in those days, it was obscure, and only the, the courts, the, the, the royalty, and the elites of society act, had access to, to Bach and his compositions, 
And yes, he was the Kapellmeister at this church and that church, but that was his job. I, I basically said, you know, I don't think Bach saw his music as, you know, there was definitely a part of him that th thought there was, there was a sacredness to composing music and um, that kind of thing. There was a spiritual element to it. Certainly he believed that. But I don't think he, even though he was so gifted and so amazing, he wasn't like a Mozart. You know, Mozart was full of himself and thought he was God's, and he kind of is God's gift to the world. I mean, honestly, but I think Bach was much more modest. You know, he was more, I don't even know if he knew how much impact he was going to have, certainly not during his lifetime. And, um, you know, he might have just thought what he was doing was just normal, you know, on his level. Right? But from the perspective of people who are in classical music, he's a god and he can do no wrong. And he's So Bach was basically an unknown personage during his time. And in fact, most of his music was lost. It's the same way the Greek stuff was lost, the antiquity, all the amazing writers and everything. We only know of them because it was preserved by other cultures, Persians and other people, Africans, who preserved it You know, once it was lost. Right, and and then later on during the Renaissance, it was rediscovered. It's kind of like Mahler was lost for many years. He was he was known, but probably more than Bach in a way in his circles and to the public. But his music was completely unperformed for decades, really. And uh, it wasn't until Bernstein came along and repopularized it, and now it's canonical. But it, it was almost lost. So. For many decades, Bach's music was, was nowhere. And then someone um, rediscovered it and started, um, you know, proselytizing. And and, it, and, and and rightly so, Bach became the uh, the amazing composer that uh, he's known to be and, uh, and systematically, um, you know, really put classical music in a, in a very rigorous foundation, put it on a very rigorous... Um, because before him, it was uh, kind of freewheeling. It was just... Just make something up and, you know, there's some analysis, okay, this is a mode and the churches and all this stuff, but until he came along to really formalize everything, the vocabulary wasn't even there, the, it just got, all got formalized, like a, like a, like a set of axioms in mathematics, you know, you, you say these, these are the foundations of the music and this is how they play out. And from that, you can do these amazing things, right? The well-tempered clavier, right? We have a scale like this. It's divided up in a certain way, etc., etc. By the way, as Western classical um, music biased people, typically, we think that that's the only music that exists out there, right? But we know that's not true, right? Because even in classical music, they they started rebelling against Bach because it was confining. People started using modals again, right? And in jazz, they started using modals again. And they started using, a whole, well, when Schoenberg came along, he kind of did the modern take of what Bach did, which he said, we don't have to have a scale per se. We can have a cluster of notes that we can manipulate this way and that way, but there's, no, there's nothing special about a major scale or a minor scale or a whatever kind of scale, a Dorian scale. We can make up whatever tone, the tone row idea. There are 12 tones in the scale. Now, he kept to the tone the twelve tone idea, but he was he was much more abstract and mathematical about it. It's like okay, we're going to take this tone row, and that's going to be the basis, and we might reverse it, invert it, and do all these things to it, manipulate it, and create music this way, right? And then there's more of the free 
composition, which is even beyond the 12-tone stuff, right? Where you, you can pretty much, again, do whatever you want to do. It might not conform. Your key signatures can change. Your rhythms can change. Everything can change. And so I really got interested in the people right at the cusp there, like Bartok and Debussy and Stravinsky. All these people were doing amazing. Berg, Schoenberg, Weber, all these people who are considered, you know, passe at this point. I mean, I think they will come back at some point because there was about a rebellion against that too. And then we got into the Philip Glass kind of thing. And, you know, I'm not a great admirer of Philip Glass, but I do have to say that he was extremely influential because if you listen to any classical music or any music, um, any any film music or any kind of thing, almost all of it, any commercial music, jingles on television, almost all of it, any any music for television, almost all of it comes very clearly from the Philip Glass school. And, you know, he had people who influenced him too, obviously, but um, he's kind of the... The, the most high profile of, of those practitioners. So, so we're still in that mode, you know, and I think we need some, you know, classical music is dying because um, it's too rigid and there are too many gatekeepers telling you what you should listen to, what you shouldn't listen to. And, you know, I mean, there is a, there is a role for criticism. I mean, I'm doing it myself, but, and there are some objective uh, ways of telling how one kind of music is rather simple and naive and another kind of music is much more involved and evolved and interesting. And there are things that you can point to objectively. It's not just like my ear against your ear and what we think is sounds good, right? That's not a very good criterion. But anyway, you will only discover that the more you invest in music. And of course, music, learning about music is a lifetime thing. You know, you never stop. But a lot of people do. A lot of people are in an arrested state where they, they just listen to the same thing. They, they, they don't get bored and they don't want to find new things. So, you know, I was getting cudgeled by the political, political correctness um, hammer again on TikTok. Um, of course, I should have known. But th those are some examples of when the political correctness really goes awry. Because at a certain point, I was feeling like I wanted to block these people because they were being so abusive to me. You know, first of all, it's a joke. Second of all, don't take yourself or Glenn Gould or Bach too seriously. Right? Yeah, don't make icons out of your heroes because that um, actually doesn't help. They don't need your help. You're probably not even in a position to help them because uh, you, you're not on that level. Um, so, most likely. Um so that's kind of my little story. Um, every once in a while, this, this the woman who originally started attacking me, then it came back like a week later, and, and I, I was just like, wow, didn't I say bye? I don't want to interact with you. But out of the, you know, let's say, you know, handful of people who were offended by my issue, you know, out of like 10 of them, and then of course everybody's jumping on their bandwagon. There's hardly anybody who's backing my point of view, which I think says something. I don't think I said what I said was so horrible. But there are very few people, I think, who could understand the argument in a way. Um, 
And, uh, but there was one person who chimed in and said, you know, I kind of agree with, you know, and I, I made it clear after a while. I thought Bach was amazing and Gould was amazing and all this other stuff. And I said, you know, go check out Bach's biography. You'll, you can go to Wikipedia and it'll tell you what I'm telling you. This is not just, I'm not just making this up. Um, you can go to Glenn Gould Foundation and about the autism thing. I'm not just making this up. And they're telling me I'm ignorant. I'm this and that and they're just projecting because this is you know they're they're the ones who need to be educated a little bit i think um so not to pat my own back but comparison to them i'm a genius you know they were all about i'm right you're a horrible person this is why you're a horrible person you know and so the people who are supposedly politically correct in the in the best sense of the word are the ones who are being so ugly in the worst sense of the word. There is a certain irony to that. But it's hard to navigate. And if, the younger you are, um, the less experienced you are, I think you know, the much harder it is to, to navigate. So, I mean, I, it's not like I feel like I hate you or something, but I'm just like, okay, why don't you meet me in the middle about what we're really talking about? And I think we could actually have a very productive um, conversation. But you're, and I would probably learn something, and you'd probably learn something. But instead, you know, if I dare point out your ignorance in a sense, right? You know, the the thing is not to get defended about it. Just say, well, how am I ignorant? I'm willing to listen to you. So that's my little. My, my, a couple of little stories. I was going to do those separately, but I thought I could just kind of put them together because they shared the theme of you know using political correctness as a as a cudgel to to um, to attack people with, right? Like the mushroom man. You know, you you don't tell me. I'm the expert. You don't tell me what I do or what I should think or what I, about these things. I am clearly an expert because I grow them because, well, you know, the, the karmic gods probably wouldn't agree, right? In that respect, it is good to be humble, right? But if you're so humble that you don't point out something, you know, you object to something that someone says, then you've also got a problem. And that's why I'm not the kind of psychotherapist in my daily life where I go around on eggshells, right? I'm a real person. I have my faults. I have my whatever. And I'm just going to get it out there. And if you prove me wrong, I'll I'll backtrack and I'll say, okay, I get what you're saying. You're, I understand. But to go out there and walk on eggshells with everybody and have this PC thing in your back pocket and especially using it in such a, a nefarious way, such a negative way, in my view, um, is part of the problem. And that's one thing we have to be very, very clear about is when we're, when, when you start feeling that political correctness aura coming in on you, you know, which part of it is the constructive part of it, you know, even if they're yelling at you, right, and which part is the not-so-constructive part. Because I had no trouble saying, look, I'm not going to communicate with you people. And if all you're going to do is tell me how horrible I am, when, when I'm trying to have a discussion about this and you want to talk about something completely unrelated to it, then I think we're, we're, we're not going to be able to communicate. So that's kind of my general attitude. You know, if you give me 
something to work with, I will work with you. If you attack me and you're not even sticking to the subject, I'm just wasting my time because you're you're not we're not working with the same set of principles, I guess, is what I would say. So anyway, I'm going to leave you with that uh, to ponder. And if you have any comments on it, let me know. But that will be it for the Bye Joe Show, July 8th, 2023. I hope you all have a great weekend. Take care.